You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Episode 69, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thanks for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Corey Fish, a pediatrician from Portland, Oregon. He graduated from the University of Washington and completed his pediatrics residency in Texas. For a few years, he practiced general pediatrics in an area without specialists. He tried practicing general pediatrics in a city swimming in specialists, but neither one quite felt right. Either way, he felt like he hadn't found his niche. That's when he opened his own pediatric urgent care, and the story goes on from there. Why we need pediatric urgent care centers versus regular urgent care, and what it means for quality health care and controlling costs. Urgent cares cost about 10% or less of what an ER visit does. So imagine how much better things would be if non-emergency care could be done in a quality, low-cost center. I'm certain you'll find this interview interesting, and if you're a doc or nurse practitioner or PA, perhaps this might be a career option for you. I'd like to take a brief moment to thank my patrons at Patreon. Thank you to Nicholas, Lucas, Brian, Eric, Deanna, Greg, Dan, and welcome back, Belene. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash theparadox. That's P-R-A-D-O-C-S. Not only do you get to support the programming, but you also get access to bonus content and shows, of which I'm producing now one a week. Of course, if you have not already done so, please subscribe in your favorite podcast player to the show so you don't miss an exciting, thrilling episode. But without further ado, Dr. Corey Fish and her discussion on his pediatric urgent cares. Oh, and Mohawks. You'll have to listen to more to hear about his hairstyle choices. Enjoy. Well, hello. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Corey Fish, who's a pediatric physician in Portland, Oregon. And he's got a really usual story. Well, unique. I wouldn't say unusual. It's a unique story uh, that he has started a, I guess, an entrepreneurial sort of venture where you've sort of decided to do something completely different than a traditional pediatrics practice. So why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, kind of how your, your evolution to getting to where you are today? You, I think you want to know why, like how I got into to pediatrics. Well, I right? think, you know, you started residency, obviously went to pediatrics, but um, yeah. did you, go, to, did you yeah. go straight out into a regular private practice? Did you get in? 
employed model? And how did you end up sort of where you are right now? You know, I did my residency in Austin, Texas. Um, uh, excellent training, Dell Children's Medical Center of Central Texas. Uh, learned a ton there. Um, but one thing that I was um, often frustrated with is I just felt like things were so fragmented. Like, um, you know, the primary care doctors would admit kids to the hospital and, you know, we'd, we'd get these kids who were direct admissions and they would either be like not sick at all or like way sicker than filled. And um, <laughs> there's just a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Um, and, and so I said, you know, I, I kind of want to live in a mountain town anyway. So I said, well, you know what, well, like, why don't we like just pack up we'll go to like small town usa where there's no subspecialists and there's no children's hospitals and i'll just do everything myself and then i'll be happy and and and, and exactly able to kind of do everything that way that i feel like it should be done so uh so we did that we moved to bozeman montana um worked there for two year two years at a little practice called um, Acorn Pediatrics, which is now Hatch Pediatrics, um, and uh, learned a ton, um, had some really great mentors there. Um, Sue Daniels, a uh, great pediatrician, um, really kind of helped me through. And, and I call that my fourth and fifth year of residency, because not only yes. were there no children's hospitals in the state, uh, there were no subspecialists in the town I lived in. There was maybe a dozen across all disciplines, um, and none of them were closer than about three and a half hours. So that means wow. I was doing everything, you know, level two NICU and, you know, titrating insulin drips for kids in the ICU and, you know, doing ER and inpatient and outpatient and, and everything, which was super exciting. Um, but ultimately, you know, Bozeman wasn't, you know, the a great fit for our family. Um, and uh, we decided to kind of move back after a couple of years to the Northwest. Um, but I, I really am grateful for that experience because I feel like it really shaped like who I am as a provider. Um, so we moved back to Portland, Oregon and got a job doing primary care here, um, which was very different in a lot of ways, you know, tons of children's hospitals, you know, with great children's hospitals in town, tons of really good subspecialists. But um, I was also, you know, kind of struggling against the sort of feeling of being kind of unfulfilled because, you know, if mm -hmm. like I needed an ultrasound for an ap a possible appendicitis on a Saturday, um, like, like no one will let you order that uh, on an outpatient basis. You have to like <laughs> send the kid to the ER, which seems sort of silly and wasteful to me to send somebody yeah. for thousands of dollars to a place where they're going to do basically what I just did and order the test that I already knew needed to be ordered. Um so, you know, did that for a while and then ultimately just decided like, hey, I'm not, you know, professionally getting what I need. I, I feel like my talents could be better put to use elsewhere and, and was kind of losing that skill set that I worked so hard to develop in Montana. So, you know, did a lot of, uh, you know, staying up late with my wife, Annalisa, talking about, um, you know, what should I do? Should I go to back to school? Should I, you know, work in a hospital? You know, do I, what do I, you know, what do I do basically? And ultimately decided on, you know, hey, why don't you start your own thing? And I was like, yeah, but there's a million pediatricians in town. And, you know, I <laughs> yeah. just, I don't know if I have anything more to offer than anyone else. And, um, you know, and said, and then I was peripherally aware of this pediatric urgent care thing and knew urgent care was like a rapidly expanding market. But um, for, for lots of reasons, I, I think pediatric specific urgent care is, um, is uh, super important. Um, you know, the whole kids are not small adults thing. And uh, so decided to, that I was just going to open my own pediatric urgent care and, um, and kind of get everything set up and try to do, you know, 80% plus of what you can get in an ER, but at, you know, one tenth of the cost and, you know, one quarter of the amount of time it takes. Yeah. 
Well, it's the couple things. One is before I talk to any medical student, I, when I'm in the OR and I do, I have like a little talk about, you know, physiology and things like that for the medical students who are with me. And I always say, you know, it, we're going to talk about pediatrics, the difference between pediatrics and adults. And of course, pediatrics are just, you know, kids are just little adults, right? And, you know, of course, that's the first line of every pediatrics textbook that, you know, kids aren't little adults, right? And yes. then, uh, <laughs> and then, and it's very interesting, too, when people leave practice. And I think uh, people who aren't physicians are are not aware of when you leave your residency, you sort of establish the building blocks, but how you're going to practice and the sort of the fundamentals of what you know and how you implement them really is shaped those first couple of years right out of practice. I mean, that's this case for, for anesthesia. I know for surgeons, it's the same. And I imagine primary care, it's very similar, too. It's just your routine, your how to get through the through your patient visits and the way you you know, figure things out. And I mean, that's, that is sort of like a learning period. And when we, when we say we're practicing medicine, in some ways, it's very true. <laughs> and I think people don't like the, the thought that it's, they're being practiced on, but it doesn't mean you're not skilled or know what you're doing. But I think it's, you're always learning in medicine, sort of how to do things better. Yeah, yeah, correct. I mean, it's, you know, it's the old, old quote, you know, it's like the, the, the second you stop becoming a student is the second you should quit your job and retire. But, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's definitely true for sure. Right. And I think it's, um, it's very interesting sort of your, your evolution and how you ended up where you, where you were or are now, I guess. Uh, when you say you were the, the primary care or the urgent care started becoming a big thing, what do you mean by that specifically? Because I guess I'm not, as someone who's not in the primary care region or, you know, realm, and I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just an anesthesiologist in the OR. I don't really see this sort of stuff. What do you mean by you saw things uh, growing, you know, trends in the industry? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, ur- urgent care, um, you know, in general is uh, projected to get close to, I think, $20 billion over the next few years as an industry. Oh, um, okay. You know, it's, it's grown, you know, hundreds of percent over the last decade, um, you know, in terms of number of urgent cares and patient visits to urgent care and, and um, there's a there's a few reasons why I, I think that that has happened. Um, but, you know, it's it's become, you know, fairly big business. And, you know, there's, um, you know, private equity firms that are kind of rolling up, you know, large numbers of urgent cares, you know, um, because I think that, you know, even though it's, uh, you know, just a quote unquote, like brick and mortar business, um, you know, I think people are realizing that it's it's a highly, you know, it's a service that people want. And it's a highly utilized service. And, um, you know, it's it's growing very quickly. Yeah. Well, and I think it seems like any sort of industry, if you can find some price point where you're about where you cut the cost by 90%, which is what you said, it sounded like it was for urgent care. Yeah. Uh, compared to an ER, which is sort of the standard emergency or urgent treatment that people would have to receive, uh, you're going to become a disruptor and you're going to you're going to find a niche in the market. I mean, you see that from Uber, you see it from m- multiple startups that that find some way of sort of beating the the current sort of way things are done at a price point that's much lower and oftentimes delivering superior care. Can you can you describe on with the urgent care uh, with your pediatric care how that's different than a regular urgent care and then what what difference does that make versus, you know, your standard urgent care? Like we've got them here in town, but we don't have a pediatric urgent care in Grand Rapids. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, maybe we need to put one in Grand Rapids. Well, it's funny because, <laughs> so we were talking before, we were talking before the show yeah. and my wife, she was listening and she listened to you on a, um, a CME product. <laughs> you were giving uh-huh. a talk at some conference, I suppose. And she, she stopped. She's, 
she often talks it i find this very funny that she talks to me about her conf, her uh CMEs because half of them when i turn them on and listen to them they mention the word poop which is something uh-huh. you don't hear it anywhere else in medicine except unless you yeah. listen to pediatric talks that's that's true <laughs> that's uh, very but, true or or like you know you know people crying and stuff it's just not something you hear anywhere else in like you know i'm talking about the uh, cardioprotective effects of isoflurane through carthoracic anesthesia. It's like, this is totally different. Uh, yeah. But she stopped and she said, this is something we absolutely need here in town. So why don't you explain why it's so different and why, it, you know, why it's advantageous? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so I, I think, um, you know, it's uh, pediatrics is, is really a specialty unto itself. Um, you know, kids are, are highly nuanced little humans, um, you know, and especially before they can talk, um, you know, you're really relying on, you know, your physical exam. Um, you know, I think pediatricians do some of the best, you know, have some of the best physical exam skills in, in medicine only because you're, you can't, you know, you can't ask your patient how they're feeling. You can ask the parent yeah, how they right. think the child is feeling, which is super useful information. Um, but it's not the same as like asking the kid directly. And so, um, you know, there, there's a lot of nuance there in terms of like, you know, watching their face and how they react when you're palpating something. Um, and then the other thing that's, that's different kind of about kids, uh, at least this is what's been told to me about adults. I'm not an adult physician, so perhaps you can correct me, but, um, you know, <laughs> adults, adults will, um, I think when they're, when they're doing poorly with their health, they'll kind of like, um, really there's sort of like a slow decline and, and you know yes they, they get sick and sudden things happen but it's like you can kind of see a, an adult like not doing well with their health um you know you kind of see that one coming kids are mm-hmm. fine until the second they're not fine and there's a very yes. very sharp drop off there um and so i think if you're not really comfortable in doing that every day i think i think people who are not pediatricians especially in the acute care setting um just get a little bit like scared or nervous um which i i can't blame them for i would feel the exact same way um and so i think because of that fear and nervousness it leads to um one of two things either um way too much uh stuff or not enough stuff and i think um or just the wrong stuff i suppose in general so um you know i I see that i I saw that you know for years as a primary care pediatrician um you know people would come to me from uh urgent cares that are not pediatric urgent cares that shall remain nameless for the purposes of this podcast um and (laughs) you know they'd come and and they'd and they'd say you know i'd be like hey what's going on it's like oh well you know, they were coughing and the kid obviously has a virus. And I'm like, well, what did they do for you? Like, well, they got a chest x-ray and steroids and an antibiotic, you know, none of which was necessary. (laughs) And it's like, can we just stop already, you know? Um, So there's just, there's a lot of that that I've seen, you know, both then and now where it's like, you just kind of like, it's just, it's, it can be a little bit frustrating, um, you know, to, to try to deal with. But the other thing I see a lot is, you know, to kind of illustrate the too much of something is it's like, the, the two-year-old with ear pain and they go in and, you know, somebody looks and is like, oh yeah, they, they have an ear infection. Here's some antibiotics. And the parent was already worried about an ear infection. And so in the parent, they're like, to the parent's mind, they're like, oh, I was right. They have an ear infection. We'll give them these antibiotics and, and get better and, and they'll be fine. And maybe the right thing to do was not give the kid antibiotics because maybe that ear was just a little bit pink or had a little bit of clear fluid and maybe it would have right. gotten better on its own. So, so there's just, there's just a lot of that. And I think unless you are a kid expert, um, that's that's always going to be the case, unfortunately. Yeah, and so I know when my wife was listening to it, there were a number of sort of statistics you were giving in the 
in the differences between a standard emergent care and sort of the what what they send to the ER and those sorts of oh, things. Can you uh-huh. just go over that briefly? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So national average for uh, transfer to an ER from a pediatric urgent care is a little over 2%. Um, our practices, um, we hover anywhere between 1% and about 1.6%. Um, and then adult urgent care send pediatric patients to the ER, um, you know, probably somewhere close to 40% of the time, or maybe even a little bit more. And like most of those patients, um, or about half of those patients are leaving the ER with either nothing or with like Tylenol or something like that. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, you were talking about how kids are fine until they're not fine. And if you're a parent and you have a kid who has a fever, you give them some Tylenol, the fever breaks, and they're like running around the house and doing everything. And then you just watch them kind of sl- dwindle down quickly, and then they're, you know, mm-hmm. their fever comes back. Uh, and I would say the same thing is seen in the geriatric population. Like the really old who are in the 80s or so, they're fine until they're, you, they'll have, we'll have to do like an exploratory laparotomy and they'll have dead bowel. Where someone who is they're younger, they'd be in agony and just, you know, and tachycardic and all sorts of problems. But the the old people are totally fine until they just suddenly, you know, they're gone. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, and so I think the same thing as far as when for practitioners, if you're not comfortable with these ages and sort of the signs, you your your sort of default your your reflex is to just to admit or to just send them on to a specialist because you're like I'm just not quite as comfortable with the situation. Which I guess you'd see that that's why you see that twenty times, you know, the rate of sending someone to the ER for for the pediatric population. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, uh, that's true. Yeah. It's, it's just tough, right? I mean, I, there's no way you could ask me to like jump into a, an operating suite and ask me to start like running the anesthesia machine. I would have no idea what to do. And I, I think it's, you know, largely the same with kids. It's just, it really is a unique specialty. And I think, you know, unless you're, that's, you're trained for that, that's all you do. I think it can be, you know, really tough ask, especially with some of the trickier, you know, trickier cases sometimes. What do you think for for staffing your urgent cares? I mean, do you think that someone who's like right out of residency in pediatrics goes straight into this, or is this something that you need a couple years experience before you feel comfortable in the urgent care? Yeah, I I think um, I I think it's not there's not enough of a pattern there to say one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I, I've certainly met you know new uh, you know brand new providers who were awesome and could do great. I think it's more of a mindset thing to be honest with you. I, I think just you know, the people who I've seen have the most success in this type of setting are able to, um, first of all, kind of get into their flow state when things are crazy, um, you know, which is how I kind of operate. I, I sort of, you know, when, when things are feeling crazy and busy and fast and there's sick kids and stuff, I kind of zen out on that and I'm able to sort of move <laughs> through that and keep a level head. And I think not everybody is suited for that sort of work. Um, and then I think the other thing is the, the 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 other kind of main predictor for success that I've seen is folks being able to just like say, okay, I haven't seen this exact thing before, but I, this is what I know from my medical knowledge. This is what I know from physiology. This is what I can infer to this new situation based on what I already know and think critically and be able to make a decision. Because if you can do that, most of the time you're going to be right, you know, but it's just having the... Um, confidence uh, to to trust that um, uh, 
but not being so confident that you're gonna, you know, make a make a wrong decision. Um, you know, one thing I learned that's stuck with me a lot is your um, uh, uh, co uh, competence, uh, confidence to competence ratio, and you should always <laughs> keep your confidence to competence ratio less than one. Uh, that's not my idea. I stole <laughs> yes. it from one of my attendings at the UW School of Medicine. Uh, I don't remember who that is. So uh, if you're listening, sorry, I stole your idea. Well, it's very true. The, and and you'll you'll find residency directors there. They'll always come in. They'll say, you know, when they're looking for for uh, the selection process for medical students, you know, who they want to get in their residency, they will always tell you that I, I want someone who's going to be dependable, who's going to show up and who knows what they know. And most important thing is that they know what they don't know. And that's always... That's the dangerous. The dangerous docs are always the ones who think they know everything and are and lack that humility and lack the and have the confidence that exceeds their competence. Yes, correct. Uh, so one question I had too about this is that you know it looks like initially you had you were you had one clinic, uh, I think it's called the Pacific Crest Children's Urgent Care, mm -hmm. and then you decided to rebrand and become Brave Care. Yes. Can you explain that decision and and what that sort of means? Yes, I can. It's a very, uh, very exciting, actually. Um, so, you know, I opened this urgent care um, in October of 2017 and realized very quickly that the hard part of opening a practice is not getting the doors open. It's what you do uh, the day after you open and then everything from there on. <laughs> and, um, you know, nobody in medicine teaches you how to run a business or any of that nope. stuff. And, um, so, you know, it was me kind of struggling through all of these decisions I wasn't qualified to make in terms of marketing and, you know, <laughs> just everything, right? I mean, you could be the greatest thing ever, but if nobody knows about you, it do totally doesn't matter. Um, right. And so I was sort of limping along, you know, miserable, uh, working, you know, 70 plus hours a week. Um, and uh, then I was very uh, lucky enough to meet my business partner and now our CEO, Darius Monsef, who... Um, uh, is kind of a serial entrepreneur, has done a, a number of things in the startup space and has three kids, one of whom split his chin open. Uh, this is not a HIPAA violation. He's told the story a number of times. Uh, I'm sure he would be right. fine with it. Uh, I've read it on the website, in fact, yeah, yes. Yes, okay. So uh, so his son split his chin open, um, did a nice layered repair, uh, saw his daughter like less than a week later with super significant croup, like barely kept her out of the hospital. Um, and he was like, Hey, I'm looking for my next thing. I've, you know, I've done some stuff in tech and, you know, in the startup world, uh, you know, I just want to see if there's an opportunity here. And so we talked and met and he kind of pitched me on this idea. He's like, Hey, look, what if we build something together? And what if instead of you just struggling through this, I come in, I help, we bring in some investment dollars and we really start working on, you know, what, you know, we hope to be sort of a one day a national pediatric healthcare company founded on the principle of taking the best care of kids and families and taking the best care of our employees and staff. And, you know, we, that's really kind of our guiding principle. We, we believe that we can build a successful business based on that, as opposed to what everyone else does, which is how can I cut costs and make people's lives miserable and, and all of that. So, um, so, so we met, we started working together, um, brought in some, uh, some investments, um, raised a pre-seed and then a seed round, uh, did the rebrand in the middle of all of that again, which is sort of like, you know, you did a good job, but now we have experts who are really good at things like marketing and branding and building all of that stuff. So, you know, if, if you can be okay with kind of letting go of some of these things, which I 100 
percent am by the way um then uh <laughs> then you know we can try to do this and so we um you know that was part of that is an effort to kind of rebrand and to help with the expansion plans um we've got a couple clinics um scheduled to open in the portland area here in the next um you know six to nine months or so probably and um and one thing you know we're uh, yeah so that that's kind of you know where we're what, what we're working on uh, at this point and, and going to try to to grow the brand and um and yeah well i mean you look at a lot of the clinics and i i'm tr- trying to there are definitely national names when it comes to urgent care clinics right like is it ready care is that like one or i feel mm-hmm. like i've seen common names at least maybe they all use the same name i, I don't know but i assume they're, yeah yeah, they're sort of branded yeah there too. are yeah, yeah, there are. There's there's a bunch of them out there. You know, in in the pediatric space, um, you know, there's uh, there's you know, PM Pediatrics obviously is kind of the the big um, you know the the big player in that space. There's a uh, um, Nightlight uh, Pediatric Urgent Care, um, handful of others that have you know between five and you know ten offices and and that. So so yeah, and then on the adult side, yeah, there's there's tons of you know tons of players um, nationally as far as that goes. It seems like when you look at the urgent care clinics, I'm going to talk just about in my area, but I know when I talk to other physicians who, I guess, uh, disparage urgent care clinics as providing yeah. not great care oftentimes. Yep. One of their major complaints is that it, there's there's not a physician to be found in these in, in these uh, these clinics uh, that is staffed by people who maybe are not the have the best clinical acumen anyway, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. find the way sort of like they're you know they're a nurse practitioner or they're a PA maybe they just they have they're not that good i guess is really would say and they're and they just follow an algorithm and they order tons of tests to try and find an answer or in a way to generate revenue for the facility too like you know like you mentioned the x-ray and the you know the nebulized treatment all this stuff that's for things that are you know don't require really any treatment at all except to say pat them on the back and say well you know come back in a couple of days if it gets worse yeah uh how do you how do you staff your clinics versus like theirs i mean and do you agree that that's sort of a problem in the urgent care arena as well yeah i mean i i generally agree that there is that stigma out there um but i i would sort of say like i mean there's good providers and bad providers everywhere um sure but but yes it it is an it is absolutely a stigma um you know i again there i mean our our goal is to do really high quality evidence-based medical care um i would say that that i definitely understand where that comes from um i think my the point i would make to that is um you know there are pas and nps that are fantastic um in fact we have two pas that work with us uh, currently um that are phenomenal um and one of them has been practicing as long as i have uh, knows as much or more than i do about you know diagnosis and treatments and for especially for certain things like i would say she probably puts on a better cast than i do um but <laughs> yeah. uh but i i think it's really i think where the where the mistakes with those other places happen is is kind of hiring just to hire a warm body to be in a seat. Yeah, I think right. when you do that, you're going to set yourself up for failure, whether that's you're hiring front desk staff or nurses or MAs or PAs or NPs or docs or whatever. And I think our process looks very different, which is that, you know, as the chief medical officer, you know, I, you know, the customer medical customer service and medical delivery and standardization of healthcare, I feel feels falls squarely on my shoulders. And I have a a uh, very high bar for how that gets done, and so um, 
you know, we don't tolerate, um, you know, uh, things like, um, you know, ordering tests when they shouldn't be or ordering medicines when they shouldn't be and, and this and that and the other thing. So, um, so I think our process, um, just in terms of who we put in those positions looks, looks very different. But the other point I want to make, and, and, you know, we're running into this a little bit too, is, um, it's, it's been, it's been very easy to find a large pool of PA and NP candidates um, for these these types of positions. It has been very hard to find uh, any sort of pool for um, uh, traditional, you know, MDs and DOs. And um, right. I think I have theories about why that is. And I think a lot of it really boils down to in medical school, you know, you go through medical school, you go through residency, and you, you're like, okay, well, I, I'm done being a resident. Now I'm going to go practice medicine for 25 years and work in a clinic and be an employee or maybe be a partner in a practice. And, and that's kind of what you do with an MD. But because nobody tells you the reality, which is there's hundreds of other things you could do with your MD besides practice and see patients. And I think we're not taught to sort of have that entrepreneurial mindset. And so for me, like I have that. And so it was, it was easy to kind of be like, Hey, we're going to, I'm going to open this clinic and then say yes to what has turned out to be an amazing partnership with our CEO and now the rest of our co-founders and, and employees and staff that we have and these great talented people that we work with. Um, that was really easy for me to do, but I think most physicians, I would say just don't, aren't trained to think about medicine in that way. And so it becomes hard for them to kind of be like, yeah, I'll join a startup or yeah, let's do this different right. thing. That seems awesome. You know? Yeah. Well, I think there's no question that, and I think part of it is because of the, the tremendous debt that now students come out of uh, medical training with uh, on the upwards of, you know, 200,000 plus that the, the risk aversion is so high to, to you know, do something like a startup right out of residency. I mean, there's a, there's a lot, a lot you introduce that a lot of trepidation to go into some venture like that, uh, and you. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there's just not any. There's not any part of medical school where they talk about really even practicing. I mean, it it's sort of a, an osmotic sort of. Pro- you just have to get it just by seeing it or hearing about it. But you really don't have any idea unless you happen to rotate through something to really know that something even exists. It's not. There's no business, and like you mentioned too, there's no business in medicine. There's no, you know, what's payroll, how benefits, HR, all that sort of thing that you have to just learn on the fly, which is, I think, kind of weird because it's almost like they're training us all to just go right out into be an employee somewhere, or like you said, join an established practice where someone's already figured that out. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and it's really a shame because there's there's so many things you can do, you know, in in technology and device development and software development and um you know there's just there's so much out there for physicians uh, that that people might really be otherwise interested in but would unless you're in it you'd have no idea that it exists um and i'd also like to say hopefully i can say this eric uh if there are any entrepreneurial uh, minded pediatricians <laughs> that are amazing uh listening definitely contact us through our website because we are hiring uh like crazy so and we're awesome and amazing can i say that well, I, I think you just did, so that's fine. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm, again, I'm speaking with Dr. Corey Fish, who's the CMO of Brave Care, um, who obviously pediatric urgent cares. And uh, so obviously you think it's scalable. This is something you're not looking just to keep in the Portland, Oregon area. Correct. You're looking to move this out, out of state. Yep. All the way across country, wherever. Is, is it sort of, admit you don't have to certainly tell me if, you, if this is sort of proprietary, but is it a strategy, you find a place with a couple people who are interested in doing this? who can uh, start a practice. He was like, here we can, you know, we can, we can 
put a foothold in whatever city this is because we've got a couple people who are interested who seem like good candidates. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a, a lot that goes into that, and and you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of you know who the who the players are in a location. I mean, we, um, you know, we're we're not looking to be super aggressive and to you know be jerks about it, but I, I think there's several you know paths. There's places like maybe Grand Rapids where this kind of thing doesn't exist, or you know, other places like that. Right. Um, but there's also kind of this uh, quote unquote aqua hire path where it's you know maybe people like me who you know, bit off a little more than they can chew uh, and just are kind of like, hey, I have this thing, I'm feeling really good about it, but I, and I want to keep doing it, but I want, you know, maybe somebody to come in and just sort of, you know, run the business, run the business, you know, do a rebrand and kind of just go from there. Um, and then, yeah, there's people who are maybe want to do that, but don't necessarily have the resources or the know-how and, and you could kind of, you know, do, do things that way as well. So I think there's, there's several, you know, several avenues open to us uh, now, which is fun and exciting. Do you, do you staff primarily, when it comes to physicians, do you staff people who are 100% urgent care and they're in your clinic or do you people like sort of moonlight? And then how many people, how many docs do you need to run a clinic? Because I assume you're open 20, not 24, seven, but you're open seven days a week, probably. Yeah. Yeah. We're open 10 to 10, seven days a week. Um, and I think, you know, we, uh, we're, we've been, we, you know, we've been doing okay with like one provider on, um, and enough support staff. I think we're kind of at the point now where we're going to need to add a second provider on, um, you know, and, and I think some of that has to do with like, you know, are you hiring somebody who already has a bunch of patients that know about them and maybe you'll kind of ramp quickly, uh, or, you know, or yeah. is it somebody who's relatively unknown in the community. So, um, so there are, uh, there are three of us providers now, um, uh, hopefully going to have a, another one or two hired within the next week or two. Um, but typically for a clinic, you know, we sort of, uh, have kind of guesstimated at, you know, four to five providers for per clinic. Um, and then just, you know, at more as, as the volume dictates, but at some point, the number of exam rooms becomes your limiting factor more than just providers. Right. Cause you, you know, you can't right. have an, you can't have 10 exam rooms and just keep putting providers in to deal with overload because eventually you're going to run out of rooms. So, so at some point it becomes more about that than the provider count. Yeah, well, that's where I suppose you think. Well, we just need to open on the other side of town or something. Right? Exactly. <laughs> you get so yeah, busy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yep, we just need to open another space. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess the other, the other one I was wondering about is, you know, you're the CMO now. You were doing everything, like most mm -hmm. most startup people, and and I'll just I don't know how much you're familiar with direct primary care, but I've interviewed a number of direct primary care physicians, and they're, for the most part, they're solo practitioners who go in and they just have a membership, you know, based. Uh, practice where you just pay $50 a month and then you get all your care through them and they have a lot smaller patient volume, but they have to figure out the whole business, you know, everything. And they usually can't scale up too much unless they start bringing other docs on with them. And uh, so you obviously, it's a little different. You're a chief medical officer. I assume you're doing some clinical work. Are you planning on maintaining some clinical, you know, your toe in the water all the time? I mean, how do you separate the business aspect and the invest the sort of the investing part and then also to actually you know do the medicine which is the fun part too 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think the important thing to remember and the thing I had to kind of remind myself is nothing's set in stone, right? So um, mm -hmm. I, I think where we are right now, you know, my I, I'm feeling kind of more demands on my time in order to kind of help scale and, and grow and make sure that we're, you know, kind of doing more of the traditional CMO work um, versus patient care. But, you know, I, once we're, you know, we kind of do a big sprint and then, you know, that kind of opens more of my time and maybe I go back to like, you know, a day a week or something like like that so I'm not ready to give it up like totally for permanent um, but I, I'm very much to my surprise I'm finding um, myself being really interested in um, you know the management side of things um, and, and really kind of seeing myself as as this evangelist for what our medical culture <laughs> should be um, so that's that's kind of what uh, it, it's been it's been really interesting to think about that and you know hiring and managing people and it's it's been kind of fun and I, I never would have if you would have asked me this 10 years ago if I ever would have thought I would have been interested in that I wouldn't have said hell no but uh, but this is uh, <laughs> it's it's actually been been quite a pleasant surprise well it is interesting how you throughout your different parts of your career you you encounter new puzzles and um, you know I think medicine and like you mentioned with just trying to diagnose a, a kid who's a two-year-old they can't tell you anything they can maybe vaguely tell you their belly their tummy hurts or something and so you've got to figure you got to puzzle it out and that's sort of what you do as the CMO I know when I was president of my anesthesia group, it was a lot of fun. The strategic parts were very fun. The things that were not fun is if you talk to anyone who's in management is the personnel issues, <laughs> things you deal uh, with, with yes. people saying things and doing things. And that's the thing that makes you want to just wish you didn't have that position. But the, the other part, the running the business is actually kind of fun. Yes, it is, and uh, and and very thankful for uh, our uh, our area practice manager uh, Marlon Williams, who we just hired, and Mariam Tahiri, our um, chief operations person, who thankfully deal with the bulk of the uh, the HR thing, so I don't have to. I mean, it just it doesn't work well when the physician who is working with everyone all the time does yes. the HR stuff. Um, I, I've been at other places where that's not gone well, and um, it just it just doesn't work. And and thankfully, I, I don't particularly care for it all that much. But uh, because I don't think it works well, then I can largely just sort of stay out of it, which is kind of nice. Yeah, that is a skill that I admit I was not very good at, and yeah. I think it's really a challenging to to be able to. I don't discipline's maybe the wrong word, but to actually like especially if you have to maintain a working relationship with someone to really like, you know, say you're in the wrong, you've got to, you know, clean your act up or whatever. And then, and then, and then actually deliver that message so that they get the message, but do it fairly. And I mean, it's, it's really challenging as anyone who's been in, in management would tell you, I'm sure. Yeah. I just, yeah, I just, I think it goes better when there's some third party that's neutral that deals with that stuff. And, and uh, that's kind of how we've set it up and it's, it's, it's been it's been great actually. Although we have such an amazing team of people that we rarely have to deal with that, which is also feels really nice. The final question I had about your practice when you when you went to go, I mean you were had an established practice. You met this uh, individual. I forgot his name. Dar sorry, Darius. But, yeah, Darius Montef. Yeah. Darius. Right. And so he said, "Hey, let's take this to a different different level, or you know, we'll scale this up." Did he have, did he tell you how to do all the venture capital and how it's sort of like all that sort of plan? Did he know how to do all that? Is that sort of what he brought to the table? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, he's, uh, he um, has had a couple successful exits from startups. Um, most recently uh, was with a company called Sightbox, um, which was a prescription contact lens, you know, business, you pay your fee, you get ah, your yes. contacts, you get your eye mm -hmm. exam. And that was acquired by Johnson and Johnson. Um, 
and so he he's he's just really well known and um he's a wonderful um kind of big idea vision overall direction person he's just got a good knack for that and i mean most people in startup land don't fit don't succeed ever and for somebody to have a couple successful exits and a couple other you know successes it's like you got to be doing something right um plus i really like the guy we've actually gotten to be really good friends um <laughs> which is super awesome it feels great to work with somebody like that um so uh yeah it's it's uh he he definitely uh knows how to he, you know he's seen he's seen the movie he knows how it ends um and yeah. he's well known enough to where we can you know we have had the ability to be very choosy with our investments um you know and and we can work really well with uh you know with people who um you know align very closely with our mission and um you know, it's just, it's just been great. And he, he really insulates me from all of that. So, you know, I might meet some investors every now and again, but I really don't deal with any of that stuff, which is, which is great. Um, but it's a, it's a huge oh, yeah. job. I, I wouldn't even know where to start. So really thankful uh, for him, um, you know, to be able to do that. And then our, uh, our chief technical officer, uh, Asa Miller um, also has some experience there. And so uh, as, as does Miriam, I suppose. So, so those guys kind of like, you know, they, they know what's going on. They've been around the playground for a while. And, and, you know, I, I, the joke is I'm sort of the company Luddite. Uh, so they, they can kind of, you know, they, they sort of are able to kind of help navigate all of the technology and all of that stuff, which is, which is awesome. Well, and it's nice having, uh, having your ability to sort of be the vision person and the person who can manage the clinical aspects of it and then have other people, you can take care, open the door. They have the ability to open those doors for the venture capital and those sorts of things, which are super important, obviously, to get something like this off the ground. And, you know, I guess it's, it was very serendipitous that he happened to come to your clinic twice. <laughs> That's great that it worked out like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. And, you know, when, when we succeed with all of this, uh, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, end up buying his son Spencer, uh, probably a really nice gift because if he hadn't have fallen off his bike and hurt <laughs> his chin, I, we, who knows where we'd be. Life is funny that way. And, you know, it's, there's something about the, when opportunity knocks, you know, you're going to open the door. So that's kind of, it's really neat hearing stories like this. I want to also say that if you, for the listeners, to go to bravecare.com, that's the, the website for, uh, for uh, Dr. Fish's practice. But it is, it is the neatest pediatric practice because everyone on the about page, I love how your pictures, <laughs> actually, if you scroll over it, they switch to a, ki- a child picture underneath. That is really clever. Whose idea was that? Uh, that was a collaboration between Cindy, our lead designer, and um, and Darius and Asa. I think were the ones that came up with that idea. Um, so so Cindy was responsible for all of the you know lovely design uh, on the website, and uh, and so she she made the magic happen as far as all that goes. So so yeah, yeah it's I'm... it's definitely fun. All of our business cards actually have our our kid photos. So when you mouse over that um, and the kid photo pops up all of our business cards have that photo on it i'll have to make sure i use the right jpeg though for years for the show notes oh yeah i think i <laughs> sent you the adult one but <laughs> no, you could use the kid I know, one I've got you want. yeah yeah <laughs> uh but anyway it's th- those that's the fun part about being a pediatrician right you can get away with doing stuff like that where and have a little bit more fun and uh, you're looser with your you're not quite so stiff and formal it, like that's 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 true. It, it actually reminds me of a, a just a really brief, funny story. Um, and I feel like I can say this now. Uh, I um, went to University of Washington School of Medicine. I love it. Go Huskies. Uh, great, uh, great, great, great experience. Um, 
but I definitely uh, came into medical school as like the one who is like, I'm not going to be this stiff doctor and wear a tie and you can't, you know, tell me what to do and all this stuff. I grew a mohawk my second year. Uh, I never wore the what? white coat. I just was like, <laughs> I was not, I was going to break your mold, man. And um, uh, I definitely made life like pretty tough on myself uh i think every I single rotation uh pediatrics is my last one i think every single rotation um that i did prior to pediatrics there was some comment about like my lack of professionalism on my evaluation <laughs> and then i got to pediatrics <laughs> and they were like this guy's awesome like and i was like oh i'm not being unprofessional i'm just acting like a pediatrician maybe this is what i should do and you found your home. <laughs> I did. I found my home. Uh, but sorry to all my advisors, uh, Terry Mengert. Sorry, I probably gave you a lot of gray hair. Uh, and uh, But yeah, it all worked out. I'm doing just fine. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Fish, thank you so much for being on the show. Is there a place you people can follow more about what you're up to and your group? And certainly if they are interested in starting their own pediatric urgent care. Yeah. Can contact you. Yeah. Website, uh, bravecare.com. Um, you could follow us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, Bravecare, we're on all three of those. Um, but yeah, that's the best place. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. This has been uh, fun. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Yep. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>